0: Hey everyone, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge podcast. And on today's episode, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to tell you the story of how I reduced the hum, buzz, hiss, and overall noise floor in my studio over the course of 10 years. It's a complicated tale with a lot of twists and turns, a lot of discoveries. But I hope from me telling you my story, you'll learn a lot about noise problems, how to combat them, and you'll have some fun along the way. Now, before I tell my story, I wanted to answer the question, why is a low noise floor so important? What's the big deal? Noise, to me, is a huge distraction from music, whether it's hiss, hum, buzz crackle, or any other types of noise, it takes my attention away from the guitar, the vocal, the piano, or whatever it is I'm listening to. And it makes me notice that I'm listening to a recording. It takes me out of the world. And that, to me, is a failure in terms of my production goals. I want the listener to forget they're listening to a recording. And instead, I want them to be transported into the world of a song. In a word, noise to me makes things sound amateur. Now, of course, there are some cases where adding noise or hiss or like vinyl crackle as an effect is super cool. It's almost like adding film grain effects on video or photos. But I wanna be able to control that completely. I don't want it to just exist on my recordings without me doing it. And I don't want the noise on a track to make me afraid of using compression or EQ or any other dynamic processing. I want to be able to compress something 20 dB without fear of bringing up all this unwanted noise, or I want to be able to add a bunch of high end on something without bringing up all kinds of hiss. Noise is also cumulative. What seems innocent on a track-by-track basis can add up a lot over the course of a mix. Take, for example, a noise floor of minus 80 dBFS. You might think that's pretty low, but if that existed on every track, over the course of a 60-track mix, that noise level would increase to about minus 62. And again, that doesn't even account for adding compression or distortion or EQ or anything else. Take a typical vocal chain, for example. Say your noise floor was minus 80 straight off the mic pre. If you decided to add 5dB of compression while tracking and another 10dB while mixing and the master bus is doing 2 to 3dB and your mastering engineer does another 2 to 3dB, well, effectively your vocal chain only, just that one track, has a noise floor of minus 58. And that's worse than the noise floor of vinyl. Now, thankfully, the noise floor of most interfaces these days is incredibly low in the minus 110 region or lower. But even then, with 60 tracks, that adds up to around minus 92. In 1995, Lewis Fielder wrote a paper called Dynamic Range Issues in the Modern Digital Audio Environment. And it showed that in demanding audio circumstances, a dynamic range of 120 dB or so might be required to, you know, suspend disbelief, so to speak, that we're listening to a recorded sound and not a real sound in a room. Now... Personally, I might argue this is a bit overkill, that is quite a huge dynamic range, and considering music these days is generally quite loud, we're still fighting the loudness war for some reason, and we don't really have a lot of dynamic range as it is, I will say that lowering the noise floor is actually one way we can help increase the dynamic range in the other direction. You know, like we can't really make things any louder. We're already getting up to the maximum that we can, but we can make the quieter things quieter. And that helps aid in the illusion of more dynamic range than is really there. Now, you might be thinking, why can't you just use things like Isotope RX to get rid of any noise? Well, Sure. I mean, Isotope RX is incredible, and it can certainly be effective. However, it's not without its artifacts, and it's fairly high CPU. And let's be honest, do you really want to have to denoise 60 tracks of every single thing you work on before being able to mix? I don't. I mean, I already do enough editing and prep. I don't want to have to do more every single time. It's also important to understand that noise is not just some layer that exists on our tracks playing back simultaneously. You know, if noise exists on the track, let's say a 60 hertz or 120 hertz hum, it's affecting the wave shape of whatever that track is. And even though we can edit out and denoise stuff when the instrument isn't playing or when a vocalist isn't singing, it's still there as soon as they start. If you're a guitarist, you know what I'm talking about. How annoying it is to hold out the last note of a song only to hear that hum and buzz lingering at the end of your chord. Even more unfortunate and unlucky for us is that 50 Hz hum in the UK and 60 Hz hum in the US are not even musically-related frequencies. 50 Hz is about 35 cents sharp of a G, and 60 Hz is 48 cents flat from an A. So neither are even in tune, and they're not easy to mask. Anyway, my point is that noise is something we should be able to control. And by default, we should try to get our noise floor as low as possible so that we can do whatever we want to our sounds without fear. And as with almost anything in this job, it's best to try to fix it at the source rather than having to do it later. And fixing noise at the source, well, it is complicated. Let's get on to the story. So the year was 2013. I was just beginning the process of designing my new studio, and I was starting to get overwhelmed by all the considerations, but especially the electrical considerations. I was going through a book called Home Recording Studio, Build It Like the Pros by Roger Vase, which is a great book, by the way. And I was trying to see what he recommended for electrical when I came across the chapter entitled Electrical Considerations, (laughs) which is exactly what I needed. Well, a lot of the information was over my head, but some of the highlights that seemed really important were I needed to install ground-isolated receptacles, I needed to do star grounding, I needed to avoid fluorescent lights and dimmers of any kind, I needed to avoid looping the electrical all around the room, you know, like having big loops of electrical... You know, on the left wall, and the right wall, and behind me, and on the ceiling. And I needed to have a real electrician do all of this because I didn't really understand it. I knew there was more to know, but frankly, I just didn't know what I didn't know. That chapter had a lot of terminology that was gibberish to me at the time, and that was fairly basic. And finding an electrician that was actually interested in following the recommendations of, you know, some random book was proving difficult. Eventually, through a friend of my dad, I found an electrician who looked over the isolated ground, star ground system that I had printed out, and he said, sure, I'll do it. Well, that was fast. Uh, (laughs) Fast forward a few months, and the studio was built. I fired up the rig for the first time on December 31st, 2013. I got sound, everything worked, and it was really quiet, or so I thought. A few months into recording at my new studio, I started to notice how my Perlman TM1 tube mic seemed noisier than I remember. It was buzzy, and even though it wasn't terrible, it still seemed a bit noisier than it should be. Maybe it was a bad tube or a dirty cable. Those things are possible and actually quite common. So I replaced the tube and I cleaned the cable connections with contact cleaner. Still noisy. Maybe the power supply needed to be recapped or something was wrong with my capsule. Well, suffice it to say, I started to get paranoid. I wasn't really comfortable doing those things, so I decided to just send it in to Dave Perlman to get it serviced. Dave Perlman's always had great service when it comes to his mics. Well, I shipped it in, and he called me a few days later and said, Man, your mic sounds dead quiet to me. No noise whatsoever. You must have something going on with the electrical system in your studio. And of course, my first reaction was like, eh, I don't know. I had a master electrician do the studio wiring in my studio, okay? It was a friend of my dad. He read the whole thing. He he looked at the graphs. He did it right, okay? That's not the problem. Now, I didn't say that to him, but (laughs) that's what my brain was thinking, right? Well, it turns out Dave Perlman knows a lot, and he was right. I tried one of my other tube mics, and it also seemed a bit noisier than I remembered. I opened up a session that I had recorded just a few months prior in my old studio. And sure enough, it was quieter at my old studio. What gives, you know? My, my old studio was basically a bedroom. And now I have a purpose-built building with star grounding and isolated receptacles, and now I get noise? Well, it was really frustrating, and I scoured the internet trying to find information on noise in tube mics, right? And I eventually came across a product called the Humex. Now, this device was supposed to get rid of buzz and hum, right? It's called the Hum X, and it's supposed to isolate your ground or whatever. Well, I bought one, and I tried it on my tube mic power supplies, and hey, it worked really well. It got rid of a lot of the hum and buzz. Now, little did I know that these devices are not necessarily a long-term solution. They can definitely work in a pinch, but in the event of some catastrophic failure, they could become very dangerous. But for the time being, the humex worked, and it made my tube mics a lot quieter. Not totally silent, but much quieter. So I used them for a while. Now, if I could go back in time, I would explain to myself that the reason the humex worked, or at least mostly worked, is because I had a ground loop. Now, the real solution here would be to break the ground loop, not just put a band-aid on it. But we'll get to that later. For a number of years, this setup worked fine. I used the HumX stuff on my tube mics, and it worked just fine. Well, in 2016, I got a project from a folk artist that played really chill, mellow folk music. He told me it was a big priority for him to have the lowest noise possible in the recording. And because he knows he plays really quietly, it's always been super difficult for him to get great recordings on his own or at other studios. He had talked about his experience at another studio where they had to do all kinds of crazy isotope stuff. And he heard the artifacts and he's playing acoustic instruments and he just didn't want to deal with that. He also wanted kind of a warmer sound, so hiss was generally not the issue, but he was like, I I cannot stand hum or buzz or any of that stuff. Well, I really liked the music and I wanted to take the project, so I guess challenge accepted. The first day of sessions went fine. We made scratch tracks and planned out the album, got tempos and markers set up, and we were set up to record acoustic the next day. We tried out a few ribbon mics and it became apparent that that was just not gonna work. You know, at the time, I didn't have any active ribbon mics. And even though I had one of those cloud lifter boxes, I just didn't have any ribbon mics that were clear enough sounding to get a great acoustic recording. And I couldn't get the noise floor low enough, even with the cloud lifter. Now, the following year, I bought an AEA N22, which is now my choice for that sort of job. It's an awesome active ribbon mic that works really great on acoustic instruments. But at the time, I just didn't have the right mic. So in an effort to stay with the warmer type tones, I reached for my Proman TM1, which is a nice warm condenser that isn't too shrill on top. It even has a low-pass filter switch that I have on there. We plugged it in, and the noise was still too high for this application. I was using the humx just like I had been for years, but it still wasn't quiet enough. I considered using a solid-state mic, but at the time, I didn't really have what you might consider a warm, smooth, solid-state mic. So instead, we wasted about an hour trying to quiet down the noise, with the client being very, very patient. He was helping me troubleshoot. You know, thankfully, he was paying me by the song, not by the hour, so... You know, he wasn't wasting money necessarily, but still, it never looks good to not have your gear in perfect working order. In fact, side note, this is one of the reasons why I love teaching about technical type things here on Recording Lounge. It's not necessarily because I think the technical things are more important than creativity or music or songwriting. It's that the technical things get in the way of all that stuff. And the more you understand the technicalities of how things work in the studio world, the shorter and more efficient the path to creativity and music becomes. I can't really teach you how to write a song because that has to come from you. But I can teach you about ground loops so that you can get back to writing your song, right? When everything's working, the studio can be played like a finely crafted instrument set up by a master luthier, right? We don't want it to be difficult to press down the strings of our studio, so to speak, right? We want to provide the best experience for our clients as we can, and making sure we know our stuff and that the gear works is just so incredibly important to the process and to our reputation and credibility. I just think that needs to be said. Anyway, back to our folk record. Well, to make a long story short, after messing with some different mics and some different mic positions and different potential solutions for the noise problem, we eventually just called it a night. I just couldn't seem to get the noise floor low enough for this record and that was an explicit request from the client. So I told him, hey, I'm going to mess with this later tonight. Let's try again in the morning. So, in the middle of the night, I went out into the studio and I tried everything I could think of. I tried different cables, different outlets, different tubes, I tested different mic preamps, different patch cables, and I just couldn't seem to get it super quiet. There were some things that helped, but I just couldn't get it really quiet, even with the hummocks. From messing with different preamps, I was able to get the hiss down, but there was still just this small amount of lingering buzz. Eventually, I took the mic into my control room and decided to put it up on the desk right next to me so I could put on headphones and look at my screen, look at the meters, so I could do these tests and see in real time if anything I was doing was affecting the noise at all. Well, I hooked everything up and the noise was gone. What just happened? What, I, I was confused. What changed? Well, I'll tell you what changed. I was now on control room power, not live room power. These rooms were on different circuits, which I didn't really think about at the time because, after all, I wasn't well-versed on electrical terminology or grounding knowledge at the time. By plugging my tube mics into live room power, but then interconnecting them with the preamps, which are in the control room, I was creating a ground loop, right? Because our audio cables have a ground connection. We're interconnecting these two things that both have paths to an outlet. The Humex did help a lot, but it didn't really fix the problem. So I found an extension cable, I plugged it into control room power, I ran it through my wall conduit into the live room, I ditched the Humex, plugged the tube mic into the extension cord, and at last, no more buzz at all. There was still a little bit of hiss on the preamp, but it was totally tolerable. We got rid of the buzz, we got rid of any hum, and I felt great. Well, I realized it was also about 3 a.m. at this time, and I really needed to get some sleep, so I called it a night. The sessions went great. The client was very happy. I still ended up having to use a little bit of Isotope RX to get rid of some of the remaining noise in the rig, but it was pretty minimal, and you know, the client was much happier than he had been at his previous recording experience, so it was a win. So I left that extension cord going into my live room for many years. I now knew that I had to plug my tube mics into control room power. And that worked great for many, many years. In fact, I still do this to this day. I just have a much better looking power strip for this. In this process, I also learned that in general, large diaphragm mics have lower noise than small diaphragm mics. And for so many years, I had it in my mind that, you know, small diaphragm mics are what we use for instruments and acoustic guitars and banjo and things like that. But there's no rule on that, you know? Who says you have to use a small diaphragm mic on that stuff? In fact, in super low noise applications, you probably should avoid small diaphragm mics because they just tend to have more noise than large diaphragms. Now, of course, you can look up the specs for this yourself and there are new microphones coming out all the time, but that's a good general rule. Large diaphragm mics typically have lower noise. So fast forward another year it's now 2017, and I'm working on an album with an indie rock band. We're tracking guitars, and I can't help but notice how noisy they are. Now, the guy did have a huge pedal board, but he was using a nice power supply, a nice Voodoo Labs power supply, and his guitar had humbuckers. I was confused, you know, why was this guitar rig so noisy? We tried changing a few things on his guitar rig and his pedal board to better optimize, like signal to noise ratio. For example, we rearranged a few pedals and we made sure he wasn't cranking the gain too high with the output volume low. We made sure we were sending a healthy signal from the guitar to the amp. You know, okay, we were able to reduce noise a few dB, but man, the hum and buzz on a humbucker, that seemed kind of uncommon. Then all of a sudden I hear this click and then I started to hear an even louder buzz and a louder hum. I looked around the room did you, guys, did you guys hear that? You know, I was looking at the client. They were like, yeah, what, what was that? Did you hear that click? What was that? We all took a moment and started walking around the room. We were putting our ears next to the speakers. We went to the live room and listened to the amp. Okay, wasn't out there. So we all heard the same buzz and hum, but none of us could figure out where it was coming from. Well, the guitarist turned up his guitar, and we noticed that the noise that we were hearing before was even worse now. So... It wasn't coming from the amp, but now it was worse on the guitar and we were hearing it in the room. Well, we realized soon enough that the buzz was not coming through the speakers. It was actually coming from a piece of rack gear, specifically a Furman power conditioner that I had in the rack to my left. The buzz was happening acoustically. Not only that, but the guitarist was sitting right in front of this rack and his pedal board was on the floor right in front of it. We started to wonder like, is that Furman unit failing? What gives? It's really annoying just sitting there with that buzz and when he turns up his guitar, suddenly the noise is worse than it's been all day. I I didn't know what to do. This is my main power conditioner, this big 2U voltage regulator that was kind of the final destination for all of my other rack gear. This is the big Furman that plugged into the wall, you know? So I couldn't just unplug it. We'd have to stop the whole session, but the noise was bad. So we decided to move the guitarist to the other room and just plug straight into the amp with short cables. And the noise was so much better this way. So the Furman was still buzzing away. had to deal with that another time, but we got through the session with pretty minor interruption, only wasted about 10 minutes trying different things, and we eventually just said, screw it, we'll just move the guitar player in the other room, we'll get him away from this thing, and we'll, you know have him run through headphones, and plugged into the amp with a short cable. We put it behind us. We kept working. The record went fine, and once the band packed up and left after the week, I started thinking about what to do about that Furman. Again, at this time, I wasn't really well-versed on electrical stuff, and so I decided, I guess I'll just contact Furman and see what's up. Is something wrong with my unit, you know? I went so far as to eventually get on the phone with a senior tech at Furman. I described the problem, and he was helping me troubleshoot it. Well, eventually he asked me, what's the voltage at your wall? And so I was like, I don't know. So he told me to get a multimeter and test it. Thankfully, I had a multimeter. So I plugged it into the wall and I saw 106, 106 volts. Now here in the U.S., that's supposed to be 120 under full load. Most of the time at the wall, we're probably going to see something like 123, 125. And I was getting 106. Well, the tech proceeded to tell me something along the lines of, well, that's probably why you're getting the noise acoustically, because the transformer inside of that unit is working really hard to boost up the voltage to 120. After all, it's a voltage regulator, and that's really more than it should have to do. It's not really intended to go 14 volts up. It's really more for like plus minus three or four volts. You've got a lot of stuff plugged into it, and the harder it works, the more likely you're going to get strong interference due to the electric and magnetic fields. And yeah, it's probably going to create acoustic buzz in the room because that transformer is literally vibrating. Well, because the acoustic buzz in the room was so annoying and the interference that the transformer created was so bad, for the time being, I decided to just ditch the Furman and go with a non-voltage regulating regular old Furman. That still left a massive problem. Why was I getting 106 volts at the wall? So I called a friend of mine who works at the power company in my area, and I told him about the situation. This guy's also a musician, so he understands my plight, right? (laughs) 106, he said, you should be getting 120 under full load, and in your area, probably more like 124. Uh, Is it the same inside your house? Well, I hadn't checked that, so I went into my house, and I measured at the wall and I was getting like 109 or 110. Still low, I mean, not 106, but after I got 110 inside my house, he said, listen, you need to file a report and a technician's gonna come out and look at it. So I did. A few days later, a technician showed up and told me he was gonna check my panel and the service at the pole. After about 30, 45 minutes, he texted me and said, hey, everything seems to be working fine out here. Are you still getting low voltage? I measured the wall in the house and in the studio and I sent him a photo of my wall socket reading 110 in the house and 106 in the studio. He told me something was definitely not right, but he needed to make some calls, file a report, and he'd have to get back to me at a later date. So I dealt with low voltage for a number of weeks. The gear seemed to sound fine. In fact, you know, most pro-audio gear runs at very low voltage compared to what comes out of the wall. In the USA, wall voltage is a nominal 120 volts AC. But most pro-audio gear runs at 18, 24, 32, or 48 volts DC. This usually means that a piece of gear like a mic preamp has to use a power transformer to drop the 120 volts down to, let's say, plus-minus 16 and rectify it to DC using diodes. And usually, these devices use some kind of voltage regulator internally once it's in DC. So, take for example a transformer designed for 120 volt primary and 32 volt secondary. That basically means your input side and your output side. Now, if the mains voltage was dropped to 106, that would really only mean my secondary voltage was, let's say, 28 volts. And again, most of these pieces of gear are voltage regulated internally so making up four volts isn't really a massive issue anyway like i said the gears seem to be working fine with no issues and you know even though in some cases low voltage can cause noise issues i didn't really seem to be having that you know since getting rid of that Furman that was buzzing i had already had a lot quieter recordings in the last few weeks so i was happy but still no word from the power company I decided to consult Rod Gervais' book again, and I came across the following passage. One of your goals with studio wiring is to put all of your gear on one leg of the panel, and all lighting, fans, HVAC equipment, refrigerators, etc., on the other leg. This will help you avoid things like 60 hertz motor transmission from showing up as noise in your recordings. Your panel also needs to have what is called a balanced load. If the total load for your electrical service was 170 amps, you want to be drawing 85 amps from one leg and 85 from the other. Now, this idea intrigued me, and I decided to do some more research on it. I came across this article that talked about how having an unbalanced load on your panel can cause voltage sags. Huh, well, maybe that was part of my problem. After all, I was getting 110 in the house, but 106 in the studio. I decided to check the outlet where I had my refrigerator, 106. I tested the power by an appliance outlet where I had a lamp plugged in, 111. Wait, why is that outlet getting 111? I opened up my electrical panel and I realized that virtually everything on the studio had been put on a single leg except for the lights. But in my studio I use all LED lights and they draw very little current. No way was this a balanced load. Now the electrician that I had hired to wire the studio had actually decided to retire. So I had to find a new electrician. I posted on social media to see if I had any connections with friends who knew about studio wiring. And after a few days of tagging people and asking questions, I finally found a local guy who's a licensed electrician and an audio engineer. So he understood, you know, what I was trying to do. I asked him if he would come over and take a look at the panel and see if we could move around some of the wiring to better balance the current load. He had never really experienced this sort of thing in studio context, but he was excited to learn about it as well. So, A few days later, he came over, opened up the panel. He got out his current clamp and measured all the current in every circuit on the panel. And we tried to move everything non-audio related to the second leg of power, keeping the control room and live room on the first leg. And after a few hours of experimentation, measuring the current from leg one and leg two, trying to make sure to not load down one too much, we had some success. The voltage at my desk was now reading 109 and the voltage at the lamp outlet 109. We were actually both a bit surprised that this worked, but it did. So 109 was better than 106, but it was still really low, and I was still only getting 110 in my house. I called the power company again and complained and asked them to look into it. Now, this time was different. I got a message saying that their system had detected low voltage issues in my area and they were looking for a solution. Hmm, That seemed encouraging. Now, it could have possibly just been a nice way of saying psychopath keeps calling us and asking us about low voltage, and yeah, sure, we'll look into it. But (laughs) I'm not really sure. Well, a few days went by, and I hadn't received any updates. But a few more days went by, and it happened. I walked out into the studio one morning and made my coffee, and out of curiosity, decided to test the voltage at the wall again. And on this day, I got 123. 123. They fixed it. I checked it in my house and I was getting 124. I immediately called my friend who works at the power company and I asked him if he knew anything about what happened. He did some digging and he said that the power company had essentially miscalculated the load to the new neighborhood that just went in behind me. It had just been built a few months prior. And there was a small error in one of the regulation devices. So actually, my entire neighborhood and the new one was getting low voltage for months. He said they must have realized the mistake after I had called about it so many times. (laughs) And they finally fixed it. And fixed it they did. To this day, I still get 119 to 125 volts at the wall. Never have I seen 106 or 109 since. I couldn't help but feel a little bit of pride knowing that I might have been the one to help them realize the mistake. If that first technician had ignored the measurements and just assumed I was some crazy person, he might have brushed it off and maybe wouldn't have made a report. But to my knowledge, he was the one who filed that initial report and sent it on to people above him. So thanks, guy, whoever you are. With newfound confidence in my power situation, I started reconsidering a big voltage-regulating Furman. But I was paranoid about getting more interference or acoustic noise from the unit, so I started looking into some different solutions, and that led me to look into Equitech Balanced Power, Now, the idea is really clever. Instead of having 120 volts on the hotline and zero volts on the neutral and ground, basically, balance power uses a transformer that splits your hot and neutral to 60 volts each with respect to ground, making for that full 120 volts. The idea is basically the same as what we use in balanced microphone cables. Any noise that exists on one line gets canceled out by the other line. The Equitec products seemed to have great reviews, so I decided to go for a Sun of Q balanced power unit instead of a Furman voltage regulator. But doing this made me reconsider the orientation of my control room. I didn't want to put the Equitec by my desk again, because if it did happen to emit any sort of magnetic fields, I didn't want to run into that same situation where a guitar player sitting over here would get noise coming through the guitar pickups. At any rate, I decided to buy the Equitec, which was much cheaper back then, by the way, <laughs> than it is now, uh, about half price compared to what they cost now, and I decided to give it a try. Now, a few weeks later, the Equitech arrived and i had carved out a little bit of time after my session to install it. Well, so began the night of many horrors. What started as a simple installation turned into a nightmare of me unracking gear, trying it in different locations, moving things around, Not having the right extension cords, not having the right power strips, not having the right IEC cables, and basically completely dismantling my studio in the process. It seemed so simple at the start, right? Just plug all of my stuff into the Equitec, right? Well, a new problem came to my attention. My computer and many of the things on my desk were running into a battery backup unit, which helps protect against power outages and whatnot. Unfortunately, however, Equitech explicitly says on their website, make sure the Equitech is plugged into the output of the battery backup or voltage regulator, never the other way around. Well, that's a problem because my battery backup at the time was small and not powerful enough to run my entire studio off of it. So after many experiments, I decided to just run my battery backup and computer straight to the wall, but everything else would go to the Equitech. Now, I knew this was creating a little bit of a ground loop, but I didn't have much of a choice. The second problem was when I came across some literature on something called the zero loop area, as it's called. This is the idea that ground loops and interference can be drastically reduced if you close the physical loops of cables down to a minimum. This means not looping power and audio lines in big open lassos, but instead running them in tight bundles right next to each other. But I thought you were supposed to run audio and power lines separate. Well, it turns out that's only true to a degree. It's definitely true when we're talking about unbalanced audio, but it's not really quite true when we're talking about balanced audio. In fact, the larger the loop area, the more likely you are to get ground loops that are particularly bad. To quote Neil Munsey on this topic, Magnetic fields exist around all current-carrying electrical conductors. Magnetic field coupling between nearby circuits can be described and quantified in terms of their mutual inductance. All that's required is that each circuit form an electrically conductive loop. The magnetic field resulting from the current flow in a loop may induce current flow in another nearby loop. Magnetic coupling can be minimized by making the loop area as small as possible and keeping high current circuitry away from low-level circuitry. The larger the loop area, the more likely the interference. So the big key points that I learned from this investigation were keep unbalanced audio away from anything AC, okay? Anything AC power, any transformer, anything that is coming from the wall. Keep high current lines away from low level lines. So for example, keep your power amps and tube gear away from mic lines if you can and definitely away from unbalanced audio. And number three, balanced line level audio will usually reject much of this noise and have great signal to noise ratio, provided that the cabling inside of that balance line is twisted and provided that there are no other ground loops being formed. Now, all of this stuff had my head spinning. After much debate and trial and error, I also decided that the most effective place to put the Equitec was kind of in the center of my setup. It was in between my desk and this big triple rack bay to my right. So it's kind of positioned in the corner here, uh, which is like a center point, branching out in straight lines to all the other firmans at the top of each rack. Now, this meant that I had enough extension cords and cable links to go everywhere I needed to go while avoiding these big open loop areas and wrapping power all the way around. It also meant I had a short straight path from the equitec to the wall. And I could cross over my low-level audio lines at a 90-degree angle from the Equitech. Now, seeing as the Equitech has the highest current of anything, since everything is going to the Equitech, I wanted to make sure and keep that away from any low-level line. Doing this also meant I was able to reposition a lot of the heavy-duty power amps and other firmans that I had in my desk and move it far away from where the guitar players sit in my studio whenever they come to record guitars. This would reduce the chance of induced noise into guitar pickups. So even though it was a terrible night, really, really long, exhausting night, it actually worked out well. I did some before and after tests before the Equitec and before redoing all of my cabling. And even though it wasn't a massive improvement, I was able to reduce my hum and buzz by a, a few dB, three or four dB in my entire rig, while notably reducing the noise of hum on my guitars. Now... If you come to the Discord channel, I can share a diagram of how I ran the power in my studio and basically how I still have it to this day, so you can get a better understanding of that visually. Now, fast forward another year or two. I was working on a project that had a lot of clean guitar work, and I still noticed that the noise was not as low as I wanted it to be. Now, I got into this idea of shielding my guitars, okay? Now, I want to be clear about guitar shielding. It is not for reducing hum, okay? A lot of folks erroneously think that shielding your guitar will magically cure 60-cycle hum for single coils, and it's just not true. Copper and aluminum tape are very thin, and they're fantastic for shielding high-frequency noise and buzz, computer and Wi-Fi interference and so on, but they will do absolutely nothing for 60 hertz hum. To fully shield for some kind of induced electric 60 hertz hum, you would need like five inches thick of copper or something. Uh, or at the very least, you'd need some sort of massive Faraday cage surrounding your entire body for total immunity. And, you know, I don't think that's reasonable for most people. <laughs> so don't think that shielding your guitar with copper tape will help it all for hum. However, it is still good practice and it can still reduce some buzz and some high frequency kind of hash. Now. Another thing that is surprisingly common is having ground loops inside of the guitar wiring itself. For example, in a Telecaster, the metal plate where you screw in your volume pot and tone pot, that plate is conductive. So if you run a ground wire between the two pots in your Telecaster, you're actually creating a ground loop. Remember, a ground loop is basically formed anytime you have multiple paths to ground. So by having the pots touching the plates and running a wire between the pots, you're technically creating a ground loop. It's not necessary to do that. Now, another thing that's really helpful is just like with balanced audio, just like with power cables, which we'll get into more later, it's helpful to twist your pickup wires tightly and use shielded wiring wherever possible. This is a lot of work, you know. You got to take off all your strings, and you got to take off your pickguard, and you got to make sure all of your pickup wires are twisted, and you got to rewire a lot of the guitars and use shielded wiring, which is kind of bulky, and you have to make sure it fits in the guitars still. And after a number of months, I had basically been through every single guitar that I own and was able to reduce some high frequency noise and buzz and interference which was great. And on one particular guitar, I just ended up getting different pickups because even though they sounded great, they were just too noisy. And I wanted to use this guitar on this project. And thankfully at that time, I had the time to uh, redo some guitars that we had already recorded. I was the one playing guitar in the project. So I was able to do that and it worked out a lot better. You know, I don't want to have any reason for not using an instrument. You know, I don't want to fear playing a certain instrument. I want to love every instrument in the studio, and I want to play it. So that was a compromise that was worth making. Around the same time, I also started getting into working on guitar amps. I was really getting into modding and repairing my own amps for the studio and I found a few mods that would help reduce amp noise, like replacing your input grid stopper resistors with some higher quality and lower value resistors. Ironically, the purpose of these resistors uh, is to form a low-pass filter in conjunction with the Miller capacitance of your first tube input grid. This helps to prevent radio signals and high-frequency nonsense from entering that first stage. Now, in most guitar amps, these grid stopper resistors are something like 68K or something like that. But in practice, this is actually pretty unnecessary because the higher the value of the resistor, the more likely you are to get hiss. This is actually true of all resistors. Not only that, but the different types of resistors have different amounts of noise. Vintage style carbon composition resistors have the most, then carbon film, metal oxide, metal film, all the way up to wire wound having the least amount of noise. So instead of 68K carbon comp resistors on the input of my amps, I use 10K wire wound resistors. And in some cases, coupled with a small capacitor to ground uh, to accomplish a similar type of low pass. For more info on this, you can check out the Valve Wizard website. On the menu to the left, you can click the article entitled Grid Stoppers and the Miller Effect. I also replaced some of the key wires inside of my amps with super high-quality dual-shielded coax cable, particularly the wire from the input jack to the first tube and the wire from the gain pot to the next tube. It's absolutely critical to try to reduce noise as much as possible in the first few stages of an amp because any noise you have there is just going to be amplified throughout the rest of the circuit. So with the shielded wire and the grid stopper changes, I was able to reduce a lot more hiss and high frequency noise in my amps. And now it was time to tackle some of the hum and buzz. Why were some of my amps so much more hummy than others, you know, even if they had a similar amount of gain? Why did some amps have 60 hertz hum and the others had 120 hertz hum? Why did some amps have buzz and minimal hum, but other amps had the opposite? This led me down a very deep dive into ground schemes and grounding practices within a guitar amp. Let me explain. Assuming your amp's filter capacitors are good, usually any remaining hum and buzz come from ground-related phenomena, and it's more than just ground loops. You see, for many years I thought ground was just ground, and all grounds were equal, and as long as you grounded the things that needed to be grounded, you'll be fine and noise-free. But that's not really entirely true. There are different kinds of side effects from grounding things in a certain way. And there are different ground currents in different parts of a circuit and different ground paths, some being more noisy than others. The way you map out the ground paths in a circuit is called the ground scheme, and it makes a huge difference to the noise level of an amp. I watched a lot of videos, read a lot of material, read a lot of articles, read some books about ground schemes and guitar amps, and... Over the next year, I gradually modified, and in some cases, completely reworked the ground schemes in my amps. Now, keep in mind, a lot of my amps are hand-wired. They're not circuit board amps, and in a circuit board, there's very little you can do about the ground scheme in most cases. And unfortunately, there are a lot of modern amps that have ground loops and poor ground schemes permanently built into the circuit. But if you have a hand-wired amp with a turret board or an eyelet board, like an old Fender you can do a lot of things to help minimize noise. So I was on the path modifying my amps. Redoing the ground scheme in an amp can be very frustrating. Hunting down the ground loops and attempting to ground each portion of the circuit at the quietest possible ground point making sure you're not getting noisy ground currents into your preamp section, Uh, you know, making sure that things are laid out well, which sometimes you can't change a lot of because the chassis is already made, you know, and in some cases I was even using elevated or DC heaters to help reduce noise in my preamp tubes because of the heater wiring, which is typically AC. Suffice it to say, all of this stuff is very tedious, but by mid-2022, I had gone through pretty much every amp I own. And some of them had incredible results. As much as 15 or 20 dB reduction in hum and buzz. Huge amounts, right? Others, not so much. You know, a couple dB here or there. I also scheduled a day with my assistant to test over 100 preamp tubes, yes, a hundred preamp tubes it took us almost all day we selected only the best preamp tubes for every single amp with the lowest noise the lowest hum the lowest microphonics and we tried also to test for sound now again very tedious but worth it after all was said and done i successfully reduced the noise on virtually every guitar amp i own even if just by a few db There are a few amps I have that are PCB amps, and for the most part, they're pretty quiet. I tried to do a few mods here and there, such as shielded wiring and possibly that input resistor mod. And a few of them, I just couldn't really do anything. So I'm just going to have to live with it. But still, I was happy. So let's fast forward to 2023. I was working on a session with a band who brought a lot of guitar gear. Amps, pedals, guitars, tons of stuff, right? The guitar is set up in the live room with a row of amps. New, old, vintage, some really cool stuff. And there was one song where we had to record a really loud distorted guitar part, and it was just too hard to isolate it and get headphones loud enough. And we were getting lots of feedback. So he said, hey, can I just come into the control room and record it? And as I had done for literally 10 years at this point, I plugged the guitar into my Creation Audio MW1 Studio Tool, which was then plugged back into an SGI and went to the other room. And immediately I noticed for maybe the first time ever how much noisier it was than just plugging straight into the amp. Huh. Was my rig really that noisy? Well, we got the part we needed and moved on. The band didn't seem to mention it or mind the hiss. It was a noisy guitar part anyway, so I guess I got lucky on that one. But of course, it was haunting me. I've used this setup for years. Why was it so noisy? Well, I got paranoid about it, so I just decided to send my MW-1 into Creation Audio and have them check it out. And to my surprise, I kind of got the same response that I got before, which was, checked it out, everything seems fine, everything's operating within normal spec. So I got asking myself, like, is it really that noisy, though? I mean, in the meantime, I won't have it, so I've got to plug straight into the radial SGI. I wonder how that sounds. Well i tried it and holy cow it is so much quieter in fact it was only about a db or two more noise than plugging straight into the amp not only that honestly it sounded more like plugging straight into the amp maybe i should have been just going straight to the radial sgi all along Well, I did that for a few weeks, and I got the MW1 back after repairs, and I plugged it in, hoping it would be better, even though they claimed they didn't really do anything. Well, it was a big change, and not in a good way. Easily about 10 dB more noise with the MW1. I tried all the ground lift switches and isolators and tricks that I had learned over the years to no avail. Eventually, I just got frustrated and decided to use the SGI by itself for a while. I was really disappointed with the MW1 being so much noisier than I thought it was. Now, while the SGI was an awesome piece of equipment and something that I've also used for years, it does have its downsides. First of all, it only runs on 15 volts, and this is fine if you're running a guitar straight into it. But if you're pushing a hot pickup or a hot pedalboard output or a bass into it, you're probably going to clip it. Second, it has no adjustment features. Really, there's no gain knob or boost circuit. There's no impedance adjustment. I mean, there's a the drag control, but you know, I, I think that might be an impedance control, but it's not as, as drastic as you might think. There's no DI output. There's no reamp input. The MW1 had all these features, and that's one of the main reasons I liked it. But the noise, I just couldn't deal with. So I started researching other options. Now, the closest option I could find on the market that did all the things I wanted was the relatively new Undertone GB Tracker. This unit was designed by Larry Jasper and Eric Valentine, and I had a lot of faith in those guys and in the unit to do exactly what I wanted it to do. Now, it is quite expensive, but it checked all the boxes. It has a boost circuit. It runs at higher voltage. Uh, it has a DI output, a reamp input, and it has a cool way to split your signal at the receive box side, allowing you to use it as an amp splitter. And it was designed with the idea in mind of making sure that the signal sounded as close to plugging into the amp as possible while also calibrating your DI and your reamp situation. So I was convinced it had all the features I wanted and more. So I bought it. Now the unit itself is really well made, very small, super sleek. The sound quality is incredible and the noise level was very low for the most part. Within the first week of owning the GB tracker, I ran into a problem. The DI output had a terrible buzz as did the reamp input. For some reason Undertone did not include ground lift switches on the GB Tracker DI out or reamp input, so instead I made some ground lift adapter cables and solved that problem. Okay, it's a little annoying but nothing too serious. I know now that anytime you're running multiple paths to ground, you're very likely to get ground loops and after all, I was running lots of paths, right? Like You have the GB tracker, which is a powered unit, and you have an XLR out to your interface for the DI out. You have an XLR coming from your interface for the reamp in. You have a send line going to your other room, to the receive unit, which is going to a guitar amp, and that is plugged into the wall. There's a lot of ground paths going on, right? So it makes sense, and the cables worked fine, and you can make any of these yourselves. It's very simple. Now, I used the GB Tracker like this for a few more days and ran into a totally different problem. A client brought in a pedal board, and I was getting this really bad buzz on the unit. I tried everything I could to fix it, and nothing seemed to work. When we plugged in straight from the guitar, it worked great. But as soon as we used this pedal board, I was getting buzz. And what's funny is, I had tested it a lot with my own pedals, and I didn't seem to have a problem. So maybe it was just this guy's pedal board. What was the problem? So because I had it set up, I decided, hey, let's try the Radial SGI instead. So we ran right into the SGI, we set that up, and there was no buzz. It was really baffling. You know, how is this Radial product so incredible for this price and these things that are three times, four times the price having all these noise issues? I didn't get it. But I really wanted the GB Tracker to work because every other box on the checklist, it ticks and it does so better. So we got through the session using the SGI, but of course, it was driving me crazy. And again, I found myself out in the studio in the middle of the night trying to diagnose noise issues. What I found was that when powering pedals with something like a Strymon or a Voodoo Labs isolated and regulated power supply, there was no noise. And for the most part, that's how I always power my pedals and my entire pedal board uses Strymon power supplies. So I suppose that's why I hadn't noticed it before in my testing. But if you're using something like a basic one-spot type adapter, or really any other adapter that's not regulated or isolated, and particularly a lot of switching adapters, you get this buzz. I was really baffled. I mean, sure, in most situations, because I have Strymon power supplies and Voodoo Labs stuff and other linear power supplies that don't have this problem, I mean... It's not going to be an issue most of the time, but when it comes to clients coming in, I don't always have control over how they set up their pedal board. And that really had me worried because I don't want to have to spend 20 minutes going through someone's pedal board, plugging in my pedal power and plugging in pedal cables and adapter cables and all this stuff. I want to be able to just hook up to whatever they got and try it, right? So over the next few days, I tried all kinds of things to fix this problem. I had isolation transformer boxes, and I even bought and modified a trip light power isolation transformer. I tried grounding things in different places. I tried running guitar amps off of control room power. I tried running pedals off of live room power, and nothing seemed to work. I even went so far as to totally redo the grounding in my control room again, reroute a bunch of my gear to different locations, reroute my Equitec, reroute the battery backup, and nothing seemed to work. In fact, most of the time the problem got worse. But surely the unit was fine, right? Like the problem was somehow in my studio. No way would Eric Valentine and Larry Jasper, both geniuses in my opinion, release a product like this that had issues. So I kept searching. Now, remember earlier when I said I had to run my computer and interface off of a battery backup and that went to a separate outlet on the wall? Well, up until this time, I was still doing that. I knew that was potentially causing ground loop issues because after all, I was running multiple paths to ground. So I decided to take the plunge and buy a 2000 VA battery backup that I could plug the entire control room into. This means that everything would go back to the Equitec which would then go back to the battery backup, which would then go to the wall. VA stands for volt amperes, and it's loosely a measure of wattage. Wattage is equal to amps times volts, so the most your standard 15 amp wall circuit is gonna have is 1800 watts, which is 15 amps times 120 volts. So how is that different from VA when you're looking for like a battery backup? Well, there's something called power factor that essentially measures the ratio of like real power absorbed by the load to apparent power flowing in the circuit. The power factor is a number between zero and one. And essentially, it's like an efficiency percentage, right? So if a battery backup has a power factor of one, then a thousand VA would be a thousand watts. But if the battery backup had a power factor of, let's say, 0.5, then 1,000 VA would be equal to 500 watts. Suffice it to say that the battery backup I chose has a rating of 2,070 VA and 1,980 watts. Again, the most a 15-amp circuit would ever use before tripping the breaker is 1,800 watts, so I knew I was in good shape. I installed the new battery backup. I redid a lot of the wiring in my control room to accommodate. I made sure there was a single path to ground in my control room. And guess what? The GB tracker noise was still there. Now, I did feel much better about my grounding situation. My entire control room was now on the battery backup. So in the event of a power outage, my entire room can run on a battery for like 30 minutes. And I was sure I probably reduced noise in some other paths by making sure I just had a single path to ground for my entire rig. So i never lose a take, I wouldn't get loud pops from gear turning off, and that feels good. But I was still getting noise with a GB tracker. So defeated, I finally decided to just contact Undertone and ask them about the issue. I really tried to put in the time to fix it myself because I don't want to be that guy who misses the obvious step and annoys companies with basic questions that I should have known from reading the manual. But I really did my due diligence on this one, and I still came up with nothing. And I listed all the things I had tried. I told them all of my issues. I told them my power setup. I told them all this stuff. Now, after a few days, Undertone got back to me and told me that this was indeed an issue, and it wasn't just me, and they were trying to figure it out. In fact, they even sent me some forwarded messages from Eric Valentine and Larry Jasper telling me that it might be caused by an internal circuit problem. There's this little resistor in the ground path that, ironically, was put in the design to help cure some noise problems, but in fact made it worse in this situation. Eric personally told me, "I'm going to mess with it, do some tests, and I'll get back with you." So, that was really cool. After a few days, he contacted me and informed me of a simple mod that him and Larry came up with that could be done for the GB tracker, bypassing that one resistor I mentioned with a jumper wire. Now, over the last 10 years, I've gotten pretty good with electronics, and on a scale of difficulty, I'd rate this mod as a 1 out of 10. I mean, seriously, almost anyone who can use a soldering iron could do it. It's one wire. He gave me the instructions, I did the mod, and the GB Tracker was dead silent. I even filmed this process and made a YouTube video about it so that I could help others who were having this issue. Now, a few months later, Eric would put out his own video on the Undertone website, you know, officially release it, but I made sure and asked him if it was okay if I could put out a video, and, you know, he said it was fine. I thought it was super cool that Eric Valentine himself, an engineering hero of mine, was working with me one-on-one to help solve this issue. And I mean, that's some serious customer service, right? Regardless, the issue was resolved and my GB tracker problems were finally gone. Now, some of you might be thinking, I shouldn't have to mod a thousand dollar guitar recording system, right? Like that seems kind of bad. And to that I say, no, you shouldn't. But in the real world of electronics and studio gear, no gear designer is perfect. They can't possibly account for every possible situation that we might encounter in the studio. That's why a lot of pieces have had Mark II versions or released over the years. I mean, heck, the 1176, one of the most beloved compressors of all time, has revision A, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and Rev H. So even one of the most respected, coveted, most commonly used compressors in the industry has gone through circuit changes to, quote, correct problems within the unit. The truth is, designers make pieces of gear, they test it as much as they can, they release it into the world and get it in people's hands, those people start using it and they get feedback and they start to learn things that they never would have experienced in their own testing. They make adjustments and they often release a new version. I built a lot of pedals and gear myself, and it never ceases to amaze me the things you learn in the process of actually using it. You know, it may work perfectly fine in 99% of scenarios, but there's that one thing that you do that just doesn't work. Or you try it and it's just noisy for some reason. Or you try it and it works, but it has some kind of weird distortion or frequency response change. So you have to adapt, rethink, and modify it. So while it is easy to be frustrated and think, oh, I can't believe I spent X dollars on this and it wasn't perfect, I'm electing to have empathy for gear designers because it's not as easy as it sounds. Now, during this whole process, I mentioned that I was taking another look at the grounding in my control room. And doing that, I started deep diving into the writings of Bill Whitlock, who is pretty much the authority on all things ground-related. In fact, Bill Whitlock was the president of Jensen Transformers for quite a while. The guy really knows his stuff. He's written some of the most important material ever published on ground loops and ground noise, most notably his paper Understanding, Finding, and Eliminating Ground Loops in Audio and Video Systems, as well as the follow-up article, Ground Loops, the Rest of the Story. In these papers, he describes the various methods for, well, understanding, finding, and eliminating ground loops. (laughs) And one of the things I found most interesting was that twisting pairs of balanced wiring can create a drastic improvement in noise performance. For example, twisting hot and cold within an XLR cable is one of the main ways that we help to improve its performance. But remember, I'm also using balanced power in my studio, so I thought, should my IEC cables be twisted? Thus began another deep dive into noise reduction. The test data provided by Whitlock were pretty much irrefutable. And the theories were sound. In his Ground Loops, The Rest of the Story article, he talks about how twisting the live and neutral wires in your premises wiring, meaning the wiring in your walls and the wiring to your outlets, can have a drastic impact in reducing noise. So I thought, well, maybe, because even though the wiring in my wall's already done, but I'm using balanced power, and maybe making my own IEC cables would actually make an improvement. Now, in the world of hi-fi audio, there's a lot of snake oil selling $200 IEC cables, most of which aren't even twisted, most of which have no benefits, no test data. They do look nice, but these companies claim cleaner, clearer audio, and of course, the classic wider soundstage, whatever that means. But none of them actually provided any data like Bill Whitlock had in his writings. So I started building my own IEC cables. I bought a bunch of 14 and 12 gauge wire and twisted the hot and neutral using a drill on one end and a cable vise or my assistant holding pliers on the other end. The ground conductor is laid straight next to the twisted pair and the entire assembly is housed in this plastic expandable braided sleeve, which I know as TechFlex, but it goes by a lot of different names. My goal was to build a handful of IECs and test them in critical applications, such as my interface, my Equitech, my computer, my headphone amps, guitar amps, or any other piece that may be the most prone to noise. I built my own power strips, also with Twisted Live and Neutral. I tried to drastically reduce lengths of any IECs that I already had that were too long. I tried to cut down some Furman cables. Like some of the cables that come on Furmans are like 10 or 15 feet long. And not only did that clutter up the rack, it's also just unnecessary to have that much. So anywhere I could reduce cable lengths and put on new end. I tried to, again, less resistance to ground because of a shorter cable. That's a good thing when it comes to reducing noise and this led to some interesting discoveries. Now, I'll admit, for the most part, the custom IECs didn't seem to make a big difference other than cleaning up the cable mess in the back of the rack. However, in some situations, I got a notable improvement in noise performance, particularly 60 Hertz and 180 Hertz hum. It appeared that some pieces of gear benefit from it more than others, and frankly, I still don't know all the reasons why, other than assuming these pieces of gear must have just had noisier ground currents that interfere with other pieces of gear, particularly if they're all plugged into the same Furman power conditioner at the top of a rack. One such instance of this was my 500 Series BAE racks. I had these racks plugged into the same Furman as my other mic preamps, and of course, It worked fine, but something I noticed when doing this test was that when I was metering the noise on the output of all of my preamps, the noise floor of everything got worse as soon as I turned on my BAE power supplies. So I made a small power strip specifically for the BAEs, and instead of going to that Furman, I went straight back to the Equitec, which again is where all the gear eventually terminates. So it seems that I've gotten the best results so far from the devices that use the most current. For example, a single solid-state mic preamp would probably not be using much current, maybe a few hundred milliamps, but an 11-space 500-series rack with 11 different modules and an external power supply might be using as much as two amps. Things like speakers or headphone amps or big power supplies or tube gear seem to be the best contenders for improvement from these custom IEC cables. Now, all of this talk about ground loops really got me thinking, wait a second. If all of my pieces of gear are in a rack, screwed to metal rack rails, and by law, the chassis of those pieces of gear have to be grounded, and these pieces are all plugged into power with a grounded plug, doesn't that mean that every single piece of studio gear in a rack is creating a ground loop if not many many ground loops i mean surely not right like that's crazy well in reality it's not in fact that is basically what's happening the truth is that balanced audio is so good at rejecting ground noise problems that most people just never notice it and it's usually not enough of a problem to even be noticeable but in truth, every single piece of rack gear that's grounded to the rail and grounded through the power cable technically is creating a small ground loop. I wondered why more people weren't talking about this. And in fact, the only people that seemed to be aware of this fact were the live sound community. Many of them mentioned using something called Humphreys, which are these little rack isolating tabs that you can use to isolate pieces of gear from the rack and from each other. I figured... Hey, what the heck, they're only a few bucks per rack unit. I'll give them a shot. Maybe they'll make a difference. So I ordered some from our friends at Sweetwater and tried them out on a few of the big pieces first, right? Like the interface, the Equitex, some of the Furmans. And then I decided to try an entire rack of gear because... After all, if the whole idea is to prevent ground loops between individual pieces of gear not touching the rail or touching each other, then really the only way to test this properly is to isolate everything in a rack. Well, after doing all this and being very careful and taking measurements along the way to make sure I was not touching the rack rails, like, electrically, ah, no significant difference whatsoever. I couldn't really measure any difference at all. Now, I'm not saying these rack isolator tabs don't work. In fact, I know they do on paper because I tested continuity between the rack pieces and... Uh, the rails. And they're definitely isolated from each other and from the rails. And by definition, these rack pieces are creating ground loops between each other. But I just think that under normal conditions, the ground loops in these situations just aren't bad enough to be noticeable. In fact, an electrician might argue that it's an ideal compromise because the rack pieces have an equipotential bond between them, meaning their ground references are the same because they're all touching. So again, I'm not saying they don't work, and I'm not saying they're pointless. I think there are some specific instances where they may be the key for fully isolating a ground loop. For example, let's say you're grounding to some rack preamp in your control room, and it's connected to a piece of gear in your live room, and that one specific piece of gear is used only with this piece of control room gear, and you don't want it to be grounding to anything in the live room. Well, even if that other piece has a ground lift adapter or an isolated output or whatever, it's still touching the rack in the other room. And that rack eventually touches another piece of gear which has a grounded plug which goes to the wall in the live room. So you might need to actually use these isolating tabs to fully isolate that piece of gear from live room power. Another thing to keep in mind is that the ground connections still usually exist even when the gear is turned off. So even if you have a piece of gear in a rack that's plugged in but not on, you still could be creating a ground loop. However, I do think for most of us, the normal ground loops that are occurring within a rack are just simply not bad enough to be improved noticeably by this. This is probably why you hardly hear anyone talk about these rack isolator tabs. They're useful, but really only in certain situations. Now, they don't hurt anything necessarily. In fact, one nice bonus of these tabs is that they protect the faceplate of your gear. So when you're screwing in the rack screws, they don't mar up the face of your gear. So I don't regret doing it, and I'll probably just leave them installed because why not? Maybe there would be a situation where they are actually helping. Perhaps if I've got two or three of these pieces feeding into each other, or perhaps when the signal's going back and forth between a bunch of racks, for all I know, maybe these will solve some problems. Problems I just haven't encountered yet, or problems I haven't thought to test. So, at this point, I started to turn my attention to individual pieces of gear. I still felt like some of my preamps were noisier than they needed to be. I opened up a session and recorded the outputs of all 24 of my preamps to see which were being the noisiest. For comparison, my quietest pre's were my Millennia HV3C, my Buzz MA2.2, and my undertone MPEQ1. All of these preamps were approaching the noise floor of my interface, which is around minus 110. And I think these preamps were all in the like minus 95 or lower range, which is impressively low. Now, it's important to note that when doing preamp tests, you need to have a few specific constants. Number one, you need to have a dummy load on the preamp. And this involves the use of a 150-ohm resistor soldered inside of a dummy XLR connector, basically to simulate a microphone with zero gain plugged into the preamp. The reason for that is that most preamps are much quieter this way. Some preamps don't seem to be any quieter or noisier whether or not the load is attached, but most are quieter. On average, I would say that most preamps got about 3 to 6 dB quieter with the load attached. The other constant, number two, is to make sure that you're calibrating all of your preamps to the same amount of gain. For most of my tests, I chose 40 dB of gain as my calibration point because it seemed like a decent, nice, real-world round number. Not too high, not too low, similar to what I might use on a vocal or something like that. Now, for high-level sources like electric guitar or snare, preamp noise is almost surely not your issue, right? Because the signal is so hot that you don't actually have to use that much gain on your preamp. So anyway, I chose 40 dB as my reference point. I ran a test signal at mic level to my snake at minus 50, and then I calibrated all of my preamps to read minus 10 in my DAW. So that way I knew every preamp was amplifying 40 dB. You can't just go by the knob position. For example, if I went by the knob position of everything set to noon, my API preamps would read way louder and noisier than my A-Design's Pacifica by about 10 or 12 dB more. But once you calibrate to an actual level, calibrate to 40 dB of gain, for example, my API preamp was set to about 10 o'clock, and my Pacifica was set to about 1.30. So the noise readings are now more fair, and they're within about a dB or two of each other. So yeah, you need to remove the variables from your testing. Try to turn them into constants. That's just good science. By doing this, you get a much more fair representation of how these preamps perform in real-world situations and under identical conditions. Now, one of the first things I noticed when testing with the dummy load was when I tested the front panel jack of my undertone MPEQ-1, it was less noisy than if I put the dummy load out in the live room on the Snake. The same was true for my Manly and my Heritage HA81s. They were all just a few dB quieter when running through the dummy adapters right on the preamps as opposed to the Snake. Well, those four preamps are all in my desk and they're all in one rack. And I have to run an extension snake from the main snake over to my desk. And remember, this is all at mic level. So I experimented with swapping this little four-channel snake for four full-size Canari Star Quad cables. And sure enough, the noise dropped by about 3 dB on every single preamp. Now, the noise level was nearly identical whether I used the dummy load on the snake or on the front panel jack of these preamps. So I knew that my snake wasn't really adding a lot of noise and I knew that In this specific instance, using four individual cables to go over to the main snake was better than using a little tiny extension snake. And this is something that uh, the research of Neil Muncy backs up in a lot of situations. Little tiny snake cables with a little tiny drain wire just aren't that great at noise rejection as compared to a full-size cable. So the moral of the story here is be very careful about the quality of your cabling, particularly at mic level. If there's one place to spend a little bit more money and get better, nicer cables with high-quality twisted lines and a braided shield, do it for your mic cables. Your signal is easily 30 or 40 dB quieter than at line level, so signal-to-noise is not on your side here. At line level, it's still important, it's just not nearly as big of an issue, so just keep that in mind. Okay, so back to my preamp tests. Again, I calibrated all this stuff, I eliminated any variables that I could, I made sure everything was set to 40 dB of gain, and I wanted to see which of my preamps are still the noisiest. Now, the noisiest was my manly core, but that's not too surprising, it's a little bit skewed because of the hiss, because it's a tube preamp, and part of that is just nature of the beast with tubes. Now, the next noisiest was my Heritage HA81, but mostly when the EQ was engaged. I have two of these units, and the second one was pretty quiet, even with the EQ on. The first one was pretty quiet with the EQ off, but really, really noisy when the EQ was on. Now, the noise was mostly like a hum and buzz, so I assumed it was some sort of power or ground-related thing. But after a lot of trial and error, I realized that maybe there was something else going on. Uh, I thought my heritage is pretty close to the Furman, Uh, Maybe I should move it away from the Furman. Uh, Started to get a little bit better when I moved it away, but it wasn't that much better. Maybe a dB less noise. Now, because I have two HA81s, I decided, okay, well, let me swap their positions in the rack to see if the noise follows the unit or follows the position. So that way I could kind of tell, like, is it because it's close to the Furman? I mean, I haven't really heard of people complaining about the Furman causing noise just being physically close to it, right? Well... Eventually, I thought, maybe I need to just move the Furman out of the way. So, I was going to unplug the Furman, and I noticed that the noise on my heritage went away while I was unplugging. What did I, what did I just unplug? Aha! The GB Tracker power adapter, which I discovered, and didn't even think about it, I discovered that it is an AC adapter. And this goes back to an important lesson that we talked about earlier. If you have a big AC transformer, especially if it's like one of those wall wart style adapters, you need to keep it away from anything audio path related. Audio signals are AC, so they're incredibly susceptible to AC noise. I moved the GB Tracker adapter to a small extension cord at the bottom of the rack and I ran a short direct line straight to the GB Tracker, not crossing any other audio lines in the process, and this fixed the noise on my Heritage preamps completely. Uh, It was crazy because the adapter was hanging out of the back of the Furman about four inches away from the Heritage, and it was still causing all kinds of noise issues. So after doing this and moving that adapter out of the way, the noise on my Heritage was back down to a very healthy level, about negative 90, negative 95. By comparison, my BAE 1073, which cost three times the price, was about negative 96. So very comparable. Now, going down the list of my preamps from noisiest to quietest, the next was my AML-1073s and my Chandler TG500s. And that was kind of strange because there are two different brands and they both had this sort of low frequency thumping going on below 100 hertz. I mean, I'm talking like 10, 20 hertz, weird kind of thumping. That was pretty quiet, but I could see it on a spectrum analyzer. I thought maybe something Thing is wrong with the power supply. So I ordered a new BAE power supply straight from BAE. Didn't fix the problem. I tried some ground lift cables and some other things. Didn't fix the problem. I didn't think it was that. But instead, I tried trying the Chandler uh, TG500 prees in an API lunchbox instead of the BAE rack. Dead quiet. In fact, quieter than some of the other pre's I had already tested. Now, I tried everything I could to get the BAE rack to be quiet. But Ultimately, I just couldn't get it as quiet as when it was powered by an API rack or a radial workhorse. Now, my BAE 1073Ds, which are also in a BAE rack, work fine, and they're super low noise. So I concluded that either something is wrong with my BAE rack or something about how they've designed these racks doesn't agree with every brand of module. So I decided to order some of those 10-space API 500V racks to replace my BAE rack. I took a baseline measurement and then swapped out the modules in the racks and took a new measurement. And the noise dropped dramatically. I was really, really pleased with this. The overall noise level on my Chandler with uh, the BAE rack was about minus 78 and about minus 98 with the API. Okay, this was not subtle. Now, I don't mean to crap on the BAE rack because like I said, I still have one and it's powering my BAE modules and it works perfectly. But for some reason, it didn't seem to like my AMLs or my Chandler. It could be something with how they're handling current across an 11 space, but yeah, it was really noisy. Then I turned my attention to my tube gear. Now, I have a decent amount of tube gear, like my TubeTech CL1B, Retro Stay Level, Retro 176, Retro 2A3, Manly Core, and... Something I've found over the years is that companies tend to put very basic tubes in their unit from the factory. Some of them will put nicer tubes than others, but often they're just sort of unbranded OEM tubes from China. you know. And remember when I told you my assistant and I tested over 100 tubes for my guitar amps? Well, one thing I learned from those tests is that the gold pin JJ tubes were almost always a good choice. So I replaced most, but... Not all of the tubes in my tube gear with JJ Gold Pin tubes. Namely, their ECC83, which is basically a 12AX7, their ECC802, which is basically a 12AU7, and the ECC88, which is also called a 6922. For the 6922, I actually found that an electroharmonic 6922 was the quietest, but just by a little bit. There were some other tubes in these units, like an OB2 that are voltage regulator tubes that have very little to do with the noise level, although they can affect distortion and saturation. I really only replace preamp tubes in the audio path. These tend to be the biggest ones in terms of noise. And doing this, my noise floor also improved dramatically. For example, my Manly, the noise level before was minus 88 and after minus 93. On my Retro 2A3, the noise level before was minus 82. And after was minus 100 the tube tech before minus 90 and after minus 100 now if i were to use this as a chain just to put some of this in perspective a vocal chain of tube pre to tube eq to tube compressor if you use the equations that we've talked about 10 times log of 10 to the spl 1 over 10 plus 10 to the spl 2 over 10 you do that A vocal chain of this going from the Manley to the 2A3 to the tube tech would have been minus 80.5 before and now would be minus 91.5. And that's not including the self noise of the microphone or acoustic noise in the room, but still that's an 11 dB improvement just from swapping a couple tubes. Now, while testing this gear, I noticed that my Retro 2A3, which, again, is a 2BQ, sort of like a stereo Poltec, had much worse noise on the right channel than in the left, even after the tube swap. Now, the hiss got lower when replacing the tube, but I was getting way more 60, 120, 180, 240 hertz hum on the right channel of my 2A3 as compared to the left. Now... The right one is closer to the power transformer, and believe me, it's very close. The two preamp tubes on this section are only about two inches away from the power transformer. This was a little concerning, and I thought, surely that's not ideal. I posited that, uh, well, since I don't want to modify the unit in any way, and the tubes already had shields around them, really my only course of action would be to shield the transformer. But with what? I did some research and found that when dealing with magnetic fields as opposed to electric fields, really the only reasonable way to shield against them is to use metal with a high permeability. Now, this is different than trying to shield electric fields where we typically use a metal with high conductivity, something like copper copper tape inside your guitar copper wire shielding on a mic cable or instrument cable these are great for shielding against electric fields but do virtually nothing for magnetic fields if you want to shield against magnetic fields you need a metal like steel or iron or best yet mu metal which is predominantly made of nickel Alloys that have roughly like an 80-20 balance of nickel to iron are called permaloys or permalloys, and they have the highest permeability of any soft magnetic alloy by far. Now, unfortunately, these metals can be very expensive. However, they're insanely effective, especially mu metal. So I bought a thin sheet of mu metal online, and when I say thin, I mean 10 mil thick, which is 0.010 inches the thickness of a 10-gauge high E string on an electric guitar. However, Mu Metal has pretty much the highest permeability of any known alloy, and bending the metal into a little cage around the power transformer was not too hard. It did take some uh, metal snips, you know, kind of like these scissor-cutter things. But once I did that, I put it around the power transformer of the Retro 2A3, and I got some incredible results. I got an 11dB reduction in hum at 60 hertz, 9dB reduction at 180, 8dB reduction at 300, and 6dB at 420. That is incredibly significant for a sheet of metal so thin. Now, unfortunately, this one sheet of mu metal that is like 8 inches by 12 inches by .01 inches thick was like 70 bucks. And I used the whole thing to make this shield. So yeah, like I said, very expensive for what you're getting. But when the problem that you're experiencing is actually due to magnetic fields as opposed to, say, ground loops or electric fields or failing filter caps or bad tubes, there's almost no other option other than to shield it. When designing a piece of gear or a guitar amp or something, designers usually take caution when placing transformers, such as trying to keep the power transformer as far away from, like, your low-level preamp circuitry as possible. And even then, experimenting with turning them 90 degrees to redirect the fields, uh, it can make a massive difference in the hum throughout the circuit. However, in an existing piece of gear, it's not necessarily easy to turn a transformer, and the mounting holes have already been drilled in the chassis, as well as the holes for the wires. You know, it's possible that turning the transformer in the 2A3 could have made an improvement, but it also could have done nothing at all or made it worse. So... Even though it was expensive, I consider the Mu Metal Shield a huge win. I bought a few other pieces of Mu Metal and tried shielding various things around the studio, particularly things with big, heavy power transformers. I even opened up a few pieces of gear and cut some strips of Mu Metal to put inside to better isolate the power supply from the sensitive preamp circuitry. For example, I was getting paranoid about two-channel units, so I opened up my a Design Pacifica, which is one of my favorite preamps, and it's a two-channel preamp. And inside of this unit, there is a toroidal transformer. So I constructed a little shield using mu metal to go over this transformer area and shield it off from uh, the rest of the circuit, and sure enough, it lowered the noise on channel 2 by about 6 dB, And now it was much closer to the noise on channel one. I hope you're getting the idea that, like, distance is your friend when it comes to staying away from AC magnetic fields. Because distance is free. It's just a problem when you're working on an existing piece of gear where you can't really move the components anywhere. Like I said, really your only option at that point is to shield it. So I then turned my attention to some of my other outboard gear, compressors, EQs, and so on. I set up a test tone at minus 12 dBFS and I calibrated all of my pieces of gear to unity gain. So all of the pieces were engaged, but none of them were doing any EQ or gain reduction of any kind. I was just listening to the pass-through signal. These pieces were not in bypass mode, okay, they were on, they were just not doing anything. And I calibrated them to minus 12 dBFS on the return. I then muted the test tone and recorded the output of every piece of gear, and this led to some very interesting discoveries. For the most part, most modern gear is very quiet. On average, the noise level was around minus 95 dBFS. That's pretty darn impressive for analog gear, and most of that is hiss, not hum or buzz. However, there were a few standout pieces that were just unacceptably high. The noisiest was my vintage LA-3A, which had a noise floor of almost minus 65. Yikes, I'll come back to that one here in a minute. But the next on the list was my Chandler Zener limiter, my 1176, my API 2500, my Retro 2A3, and my Retro Stay Level. And here's the curious thing about those pieces, they were all in the same rack. I started doing some tests with all of these pieces monitored and recorded on separate tracks. Basically what I found is that the two tube pieces, the 2A3 and the Stay Level, were both inducing hum into surrounding pieces. The Mu Metal shield that I made for the 2A3 definitely helped quiet it down a lot, but it wasn't really doing enough to stop the noise from getting into the surrounding pieces. I made a list of all the changes that happened to every piece of gear when I turned the 2A3 on and off, the stay level on and off, and I gradually started to put together the pieces of the puzzle. Now, for the most part, I don't track much with the stay level because it's pretty aggressive and a colored sound, but I am likely to use it in the mix. So it's usually off. But while tracking, I do use the 2A3 and the Zener a lot, so I decided to totally flip around the pieces of gear in that rack. I moved the 2500 down one slot, away from the 1176, I put a vent panel in between, I put the Chandler Zener below the 2500 with a sheet of Mu Metal in between. The Chandler has an external power supply, so I knew that it wasn't necessarily inducing noise into the API, but the API might be inducing noise into the Chandler, hence the Mu metal. I then put the 2A3 at the bottom of the rack away from everything. And the stay level, which, like I said, usually stays off while tracking, is in between the 2A3 and the Zener. Doing this put a lot of physical distance between the 2A3 and the Zener, and it keeps the 2500 farther away from the 1176. When all was said and done, I was able to reduce noise in every single piece of gear in this rack. On the 2A3, it reduced noise by 3 dB at 60 Hz and 18 dB at 180hz. On the 2500, I reduced 60hz hum by about 16dB and 300hz hum by 14dB. Not subtle at all. On the Zener, it reduced 60hz hum by about 9dB, and on the 1176, I reduced 60hz and 180hz hum by 6dB each. The only downside with this new rack placement is that because the stay level is now in between two other noisy pieces of gear, turning it on results in a ton of noise induced into both. Really, the ideal solution would be to move the stay level away from the rack entirely and put it in its own rack, but I don't have the space for that. I'm in a similar predicament with my 176 in another rack. Okay. It also induces noise into some nearby pieces of gear, but I also don't use it a ton while tracking for the same reasons. It's pretty aggressive. So it's mostly a mixed piece. So for now, I just try to keep those off while tracking. And it makes sense too. I mean, if I'm not using them, why have them on it? wastes electricity. It shortens the life of the tubes and the filter caps. There's really no benefit to keeping them on other than that they look cool. Maybe one day I'll move them out of the rack and into their own enclosures. But for now, I'm okay to just leave them off and only turn them on when needed. Now, remember earlier when I mentioned that the noisiest piece of outboard gear I have is my vintage LA3? Well, it was actually shockingly high and I've avoided it in many cases because of it. I wanted to figure out, was there any way that I could reduce it? I noticed that the noise was not very specific. It wasn't just hiss or hum or buzz, it was just kind of everything. The noise spectrum looked different than your typical noise floor of most pieces of gear. I looked in the back of the unit and was investigating the pigtail connectors that are screwed into the screw terminals in the back. I noticed for the first time ever that the ground was actually lifted on the output XLR and it was clearly intentionally done because the ground connector was tied off with a cable tie. I clipped that cable tie and tried connecting to ground, and, well, the noise got worse. What this tells me is that there is a ground-related problem, and whoever attached these pigtail connectors recognized this as well. So they lifted the ground on the XLR, and that's just how this cable has stayed for its lifetime. This is actually quite common in a lot of old gear to have something called the pin one problem. However, if you refer to the gospel according to Bill Whitlock, you would know that the best place to lift the ground is on the receive side of an XLR connector, not on the transmit side. So the output of your compressor is the transmit side and the receive side is, well, the patch bay. So I connected the ground to the back of the LA-3, and yes, it did get noisier, but instead I added a ground-lifted TRS patch cable at my patch bay, and the noise dropped by more than 15 dB from what it was before. A huge improvement. Now, I tried to build a ground lift adapter to mount into the rear of the patch bay permanently, but in doing so, I realized that my patch bay has ground continuity between the top and bottom jacks, so between your output and input, meaning that even if I inserted a ground lifted plug into the rear of the unit, I would still be making ground contact with the input ground of the unit. So the easiest solution is to just use a ground lifted patch cable on the front of the bay whenever I'm using the la3 because my outboard patch bay is different than my input patch bay to my interface now that's something you might have to do in your studio to make sure you can isolate grounds is don't put all of your gear on a single patch bay put your interface on one patch bay Put your mic preamps on another patch bay, put all of your outboard on another patch bay. This will give you a little bit more flexibility for diagnosing problems and making sure that you're not making unintentional ground contact. Anyway, after all was said and done, the noise floor went down from minus 65 to minus 79. Sadly, it's still the noisiest piece of outboard gear I own even after that change, but it's a heck of a lot more tolerable now. And, you know, the original Yuri manual actually specifies 80 dB below the input level, so this is more or less within spec. There may be a few other things I can do to lower the noise, perhaps some better pigtail connectors, or perhaps some internal mu-metal shielding, but that will have to wait for another day. All in all, even though this process was exhausting and took many, many hours of experimentation, I felt very pleased with these decisions. I was able to reduce the noise in over a dozen pieces of gear by a significant amount. 60 hertz, 120 hertz, 180 hertz, and all of these other buzzy harmonics have almost all but been eliminated from almost every piece of gear I own. Yes, there's still some hiss, but that's almost inevitable with any piece of gear. Transistors hiss, resistors hiss, tubes hiss. It's kind of the nature of the beast. But thankfully, hiss is way less annoying than hum or buzz. And in fact, it's usually harder for us to hear than hum or buzz. Some people even like the sound of hiss. But I doubt you'll find many people who actually enjoy the sound of hum or buzz. Because hiss is somewhat inevitable, the best we can do is manage our gain staging well, and this starts at the source. If you're recording a really quiet source, like a finger-picked acoustic guitar, and you're trying to get the lowest noise possible, it's probably a good idea to mic it rather close with a very low noise mic. Not only that, but a microphone that has a good amount of top end, naturally. If you go into a hissy preamp with a dark mic only to brighten it up later, you're just gonna bring up more of that hiss. If you instead recorded with a rather bright mic and needed to darken it later, then you'd be removing hiss from your signal. It makes sense? Now, another interesting thing I learned in this process by testing preamps and doing a bunch of noise tests, you know, the full spectrum of the noise, I'm talking from 20 Hertz to 20 kilohertz, will typically be affected by your output trim control if your preamp has one, but boosting gain On your preamp will often only bring up a bit more hiss so counterintuitively it's actually advantageous noise-wise to drive your preamps a little harder than just dead clean but then pull your output trim back a little bit i'll explain so to test this out i ran a signal into my heritage ha81 which is kind of a neve style pre and it has a gain knob and an output trim right And I calibrated the output to minus 24 dBFS. So I'm metering minus 24 in the DAW always. And I started with 10 dB of preamp gain with the output trim maxed, right? And my overall noise was minus 93. Now, when I bumped up the gain to 20 dB and dialed back the output trim, again, still calibrating to minus 24, my overall noise level was minus 99. So, I got 6dB noise improvement just from giving it a little more gain and a little less output trim. I kept going 30dB, 40dB, all the way up to 50dB of gain, where my output trim was now all the way back at 8 o'clock, still calibrated to minus 24 in the DAW, but my noise level had dropped to minus 105. So. As you can see, driving the input gain harder and reducing the output trim, at least in some preamps, can actually reduce your overall noise level. Not only that, but driving the input gain harder will typically get you more harmonic coloration and clip off some transients, which will give your sound more apparent loudness and a higher RMS. So while it may be counterintuitive, it's pretty easy to test and prove for yourself. Again, not every preamp will probably have this result, and there's a lot of preamps out there that don't even have an output trim control. The output trim on your preamp might not actually be at the end of the circuit, also. It could be somewhere in the middle, or it might not really be an output attenuator so much as it is a fine gain control. Okay, just be aware of that. It could be different in different preamps, but it's simple to do for yourself. Just run a steady state tone into a mic preamp, calibrate it to a certain level within your DAW, and then just compare turning up the gain and then turning down your output trim, and then pausing your test tone and then measuring the noise with no signal going through the unit. Now, at this point, I was finally feeling very confident that most of my electrical noise, or ground noise, or induced magnetic fields had gotten very low. I had found so many little wins from so many of these things over the years. The next step was to turn my attention to acoustic noise. It's kind of ironic that even though I've done all of this work to reduce electrical noise, most of the time, the noise from air conditioners or computer fans or just rumble from the street, a lot of times that is louder than anything that we've been doing in terms of electrical noise. So that's a big problem. However, this episode has already gotten really long, so I'm going to have to put that in another episode. But. What I thought I would do is just give you a summary of all the things that I've learned, at least about electrical noise in the last 10 years. So number one, if you're starting a new build, Have your electrical wires run with a twisted live and neutral and a straight ground wire. Heavy gauge, nice tight twists on the live and neutral. Use isolated ground receptacles and straight runs. Don't loop all around the room or the facility. Absolutely avoid loose, randomly placed wires within a conduit. Romex is okay, but the twisted live and neutral is better. Put your audio circuits on one leg of power and all of your lighting and appliances and your refrigerators and microwaves on another leg of power. Don't use fluorescent bulbs or any dimmers of any kind. Instead, use smart LED lighting. Number two, set up your studio where all power and audio branch out from a central star point. Avoid making big loops or circle-shaped cable runs around your room. Run all of your individual pieces of gear to a number of firmans at the top of your racks or power strips, and then run all of those firmans to a single heavy-duty firmin or a balanced power unit and plug that into the wall. If you're using a battery backup, put it before that, right after the wall. So you go to the wall, to the battery backup, to your big boy Furman or balance power unit, and then that distributes to all of your individual Furmans. I would recommend somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 VA. You generally won't need more than 2,000 VA. All of your stuff can and should eventually tie back to a single outlet, okay? Audio gear doesn't require as much current as you think. My entire control room with every piece of gear on uses about nine amps, okay? Most outlets are rated for 15 or 20 amps before the breaker trips. Number three, use high quality cabling everywhere you can and try to keep it as short as possible. Good balanced cable with heavy gauge shields, stuff like Mogami, Canari, Gotham, or Belden. Personally, I've had some of the best results using Canari Star Quad balanced cable, which is model number LE46. It's a bit more of a pain to work with because it's quad cable, but it has a heavy braided shield and great noise rejection, as well as being super durable. To me, it's probably the best compromise of all the cables that I've tried. Don't skimp on good cables, especially at mic level, and especially for unbalanced lines. Once you're at line level, it's not quite so dire, but at mic level, try to use the best stuff you can. And if you can make it yourself, do it, because you'll save yourself thousands of dollars. Now, for instrument cables, I use high-quality coax wire like the GEPCO XB20UB. You want low shield resistance when it comes to unbalanced cabling, and the GEPCO has a dual-braided shield that's quite beefy try to keep these cables really short as well. Use heavy gauge IEC cables, especially for amplifiers, studio monitors, or any tube gear. Regular IECs honestly aren't that bad magnetic field-wise, but if you want to go the extra mile, you can build them yourself with a twisted live and neutral and a straight ground. I saw some improvements doing this in certain situations. Run your balanced cables in parallel to your AC cables, maybe separated by at most an inch or two, Avoid running unbalanced cables anywhere near AC power or AC transformers or anything AC. Running cabling near DC, such as like 9-volt pedal power cables, is generally not a problem. But that being said, always make sure to use a high-quality, regulated power supply for your pedals like a Strymon or a Voodoo Labs. Number four, avoid unbalanced cabling wherever you can. Keep those lines short and away from any power-related things or any AC transformers or adapters. Try to place your guitar gear away from any heavy-duty power conditioning or power distribution or any gear with big transformers. And as soon as possible, get your unbalanced signal balanced via the use of a transformer, a direct box, or at the very least, make sure you're using a properly wired unbalanced-to-balance cable. If you want a graphic of how to properly wire that, send me an email. And if you're transmitting your guitar over a long distance from room to room or from front of house to stage, you need to be using some sort of system like the Radial SGI or the GB Tracker from Undertone. Both of these systems will turn your signal into a balanced signal, allowing you to go hundreds of feet without signal loss or noise, and then on the opposite end, they have a receive box that turns it back down to guitar level and unbalances it. This is really one of the only ways to transmit your guitar signal over a long distance without noise. The only other way being if you have a head in your control room and you run a long speaker cable to the other room, that's a pretty decent option. But even with that, you can probably only get away with 50, 75, maybe 100 feet before you start getting pretty significant tone loss. Number four, gain staging is really important even in the modern 24-bit era it's still a good idea to record sounds relatively hot, provided you're not clipping or getting close to it on your converters. You don't really need tons of headroom on your converters, but you wanna leave a few dB for sure, at least three or four dB in my opinion. Be aware that driving your mic preamps a little bit hotter while recording while reducing your output trim can often result in a lower noise floor overall. However, this may not be the best choice for everything, particularly things that are prone to hiss, uh, as gain will bring up the hiss rather than more hum or buzz, Driving your preamps a little harder will also mean that you'll get a little bit of saturation and harmonic coloration which will clip off a little bit of peaks, round off your transients, and prevent clipping your converters, which is a good thing. And that'll allow you to track a little bit hotter without fear of digital clipping. Number six, in some cases, modification of gear may be necessary to achieve an ultra-low noise floor. Now, this could be as simple as replacing a few tubes with some newer, better, lower noise tubes, or it could mean installing mu-metal shields inside or around certain transformers or between certain pieces of gear. It could mean modifying your guitar amps with better shielded wiring or changing out a few resistors or changing some ground locations. If you really want to get that noise floor super low, this is a possibility you may have to face. And if you feel any hesitation about all that, you know, opening up your gear, don't risk your safety. Send it to a tech who can help you lower the noise. Number seven, be aware of ground loops. They are incredibly common, especially in complex studio setups with a lot of interconnected pieces of gear be mindful of where everything is grounded and where everything is getting its power, and in general, try to keep everything on one ground path. There are some situations where you may need to use a ground-lifted XLR connector or an audio isolation transformer, but in general, you should never be removing a ground from a power connection, okay? For a more detailed look at ground loops, make sure to check out my YouTube video entitled Ground Loops, What They Are and How to Eliminate Them in Audio Rigs. You can find that over at the Recording Lounge YouTube channel. Number eight, not all pieces of gear are created equally. Just because a piece of gear says brand XYZ doesn't mean it's going to have low noise. In fact, Bill Whitlock has said he routinely consults gear companies that have tons of ground loops and noise issues within their gear that they're not even aware of, even huge brands that we all know and love. No gear designer is perfect, and sometimes those things just slip through the cracks. You have to be discerning, you have to remove your ego and your biases, and test gear for what it is. If you can measure higher noise on power supply A versus power supply B, and the performance otherwise is the same, then go with power supply B, or figure out what's wrong with power supply A, or how you're connecting to it or from it, and fix the problem. There's not much of a good argument for brand loyalty when it comes to measured proof. Number nine In general, tube gear or any gear with big power transformers will likely emit hum and buzz into nearby pieces of gear. When doing my noise test, for example, my Chandler Zener had some of the worst noise of any piece of gear I had, which was bizarre because it has an external power supply. But above and below it were two pieces of tube gear, both of which have big power transformers mounted on the back, both of which induced massive 60, 180, 240, 300 hertz hum into the Chandler Zener. When those two pieces were off, the Zener was completely hum-free. The moral of the story is that where you place your gear in the rack matters, and it can have a drastic impact on the noise. When in doubt, try to leave a space between pieces of gear, especially if it's tube gear. Now, that's not just for heat, it's also for reducing magnetic field strength. Only turn on the pieces of gear that you need. Don't turn on a surrounding piece just because it looks cool. If you want the lowest possible noise floor, really you only need to turn on the pieces of gear that you're using and nothing else. You may need to reorganize your rack to put some of the noisy pieces farther away from the more sensitive pieces. And worst case, you may need to shield the victim pieces from hum. Another thing I've learned in this process is that, in general, it's often more effective to shield the victim pieces rather than the source of the hum. Why? That seems a little counterintuitive, but it's because magnetic field strength drops off dramatically with distance. So if you can put a little distance between the pieces and then shield the victim piece, the magnetic field strength is already much weaker. So the shielding becomes a little bit easier. It's similar to pop filters. If you put a pop filter right by somebody's mouth, the air is just going to go right through it because it's too strong and focused to be stopped by that pop filter. But if you instead put the pop filter closer to the mic and leave a little space between the mouth and the filter, the air has a chance to lose strength and dissipate a little. So by the time it hits the pop filter, it doesn't have as much strength and the pop filter doesn't have as much to do. Hopefully that analogy makes sense. And finally, in general, even with all of this being said, most gear noise is generally quite low in the grand scheme, especially when it comes to interfaces or solid-state microphones, especially large diaphragm microphones, solid-state mic preamps, solid-state EQs. You know, acoustical noise, rumble, air conditioner noise, computer fans, things like that can be a massive cause of noise in your signal, sometimes far higher than your actual mic preamps or compressors or any of your cabling. So you have to take steps as an engineer to make sure you're making smart decisions while engineering. You need to place those things far away from your microphones, and when in doubt, try to point the null of your polar pattern towards the noise source. Keep in mind that most microphones are omnidirectional at a low enough frequency, so if you've got rumble from your air conditioner, you may just need to turn it off while recording. Now, again, this episode has gone really long, so we're going to talk some more about acoustic noise in another episode, but in situations where super low noise is required, just always be mindful of your mic placement and your source loudness and your noise sources. Noise floor is almost never an issue on things like snare drum because the signal is super loud and the mic is placed close. But a finger-picked acoustic guitar recorded from three feet away is probably going to be an issue. You just have to be mindful of your mic placement, your mic choice, your source loudness, and any noise sources in the room if you want to get the lowest possible noise floor. In some cases, the increase of proximity effect from miking close might be worth it, even if it means you have to EQ out some low end. because hey, at least you'll duck out some 60 and 120 hertz in the process. That being said, you could try using an omnidirectional mic or a wide cardioid mic to get a little bit less proximity effect when you're micing that close. So, is that the end of the story? Will our hero ever achieve the inky black silence of a noise floor? Well, I'm not sure. As you can tell, there's a lot of characters in this story, and there are a lot of things to consider. And at a certain point, it becomes a game of little wins and losses and a few dB reduction here and there. There comes a point when you have to decide how far is too far. Because sure, you could continuously upgrade your cables with better shields and higher quality quad cables. You could isolate rack pieces and recap all your power supplies and move everything spaced away from each other and line the walls of your studio with copper sheets, (laughs) or you could accept that noise to some degree is an inevitable part of analog gear. And as I mentioned before, gear designers aren't perfect, and some pieces of gear are just noisier than others. If you look up the specs of some of the most famous microphones and compressors in history, many of them have a pretty high noise floor compared to what we consider today acceptable. Hiss and hum, to some degree, are inevitable. The best you can do is minimize it as much as possible and try not to make it worse by bad practices. But only you can decide how far is too far to take it. It can get very expensive to redo cabling, to shield things, and it's very time-consuming experimenting with different grounding or power distribution options. So I guess my best advice is to take it in steps. Don't try to fix all of your noise problems in one go. Try to take good notes, record your tests, and actually see what makes a difference. Don't get caught up in the hype of some of these snake oil products that claim to drastically reduce your noise floor. Go with the science. Go with what has been proven. Don't really leave any room for opinion if you can. You want it to be provable, measurable, and repeatable. That's just good engineering and good science. Thanks for taking the time to listen to my story. I hope it was informative, and I hope you learned a lot. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to send me an email at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com, or you can fill out the form on our website please consider becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash recordinglounge. It's very, very helpful for offsetting the costs of doing this podcast, for hosting, and so on. And also consider joining us on Discord. It's a great community where you can talk and chat with other people who are Recording Lounge fans. You can ask questions, and you'll get updates on new things that I'm working on, or you can ask me questions directly, and we can have cool conversations. In the meantime, I am wishing all of you a very low-noise New Year. I'll talk to you next time. See ya.